Welcome, it's good to be back uh, with you all. Turning with me in your Bibles to first, uh, or rather Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, and you'll see on the screen as well some of the other um, passages, 1 Peter and 1 Timothy, that we'll be looking at uh, today. I planned this uh, message last month, long before we knew who would uh, uh, win the election or elections, Uh, but I figured this weekend we would need a reminder about what it means as Christians to submit to the governing uh, authorities. Regardless of who would win, this is for us. This passage says nothing about whether an existing government authority follows Jesus or not. It is written to those of us who do follow Jesus. And so it's for us to grapple with what is the Spirit of God saying to us. And really, these three key passages of the New Testament could not be more direct or more fitting for us as we think about how do we relate to those who are in authority, presidents, governors, mayors, uh, lawmakers, laws, law enforcement. What's our attitude? And what will we do in response to human authority? It, it may not be an easy message for you. It often isn't. In fact, Scripture often is not easy for us, is it? It's almost, it's almost like a, a characteristic that uh, God is speaking to us. And I pray that uh, we would just all put in our own hearts that, that willingness and openness that uh, God could speak to us today through his word. This first principle, the one from Romans 13, is essentially this. We need to submit to human authority to embrace God's sovereignty. We submit to human authority to embrace, really, God's authority, God's sovereignty. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established or instituted by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So, the winners of elections in America, the government officials in other countries, are there because God has established them, not because of their form of of government, not because of the electoral college, not because of popular vote, but because God has appointed them. This word uh, appointed or instituted or established that you see in your scriptures there is only used two other times in the New Testament. Once it's used in Acts 13 where it says how God appointed those who would believe. That's where we have to grapple with God's sovereignty and salvation. The other is Acts 22, when it says, uh, Paul says that God appointed or assigned him all that he should do. And so it's clearly saying it's that which God has decided to do is also who will be our government rulers. These these three passages we look at today, we're actually, the reason we're studying them in the order we are is because this is the order in which they were written. They were written over about a nine to ten year span of time. 
First of all, Romans. Then, that was by Paul. And then what Peter said in 1 Peter. And then what Paul would write in a personal letter to Pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy. So it's about a nine-year period of time. And it all occurs within, a, within the reign of the Caesar or king or his name is Nero who was ruling from before the first letter was written till after Paul wrote 1 Timothy. You may have heard of, of Nero and, and some of his uh, character. He was a horrible, murderous man. Um, according to the Roman historian Tacitus, Nero ordered uh, Rome to be set on fire for his own political purposes, and then he accused Christians of doing it as a scapegoat, and then had Christians arrested, brought into the Colosseum, and fed to beasts, wild, hungry beasts, and others lit his gardens being burnt. That's the man who was ruling, and Nero was that king when Paul was writing this. In addition, Peter had endured unjust imprisonment by local authorities, Acts 4 and 5, we'll see some of that. When Paul wrote 1 Timothy, he had already spent two years in a Roman prison, or in Roman imprisonment, even though it was a house arrest. So it just is interesting that if anybody had opportunity to be bitter or antagonistic or rebellious against human authority, it would be Peter and Paul. And yet it strikes me as being just like God to inspired those two men to write this, showing just the, the power of God to soften the heart of these spiritual leaders to write these important words to us. Nero was accountable to God for his sin and crimes. You can rest assured of that. But Christians are responsible to submit to human government and to grapple daily with what that means for us. Are there exceptions? Yes. There are exceptions, and it's really helpful because Peter, having written one of these passages, is an example of it in, in the book of Acts. So the exception can be stated something like this. We need to obey God rather than men or human rulers if we are told to sin or forbidden to do something that God has told us to do. We must obey God rather than men if we are asked to violate some biblical command principle that is an absolute. And there was an occasion of that in the book of Acts in the early church. Peter and John were arrested by the temple guard in Jerusalem and put in jail. The temple guard had that authority because they preached Jesus and wouldn't stop preaching Jesus. And the next morning as they appeared before the government, Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, referring to the rulers, instead of to God, rather than God, you must judge or decide, but we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So you can do to us whatever you want to do, but Jesus Christ has asked us to declare him, and, and so we have to do that. Or a little later in the same situation, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. So there is a clear exception 
that when we are asked to uh, disobey an absolute of God, we must disobey human government. So it was no contradiction that Peter, on one hand, in First Peter we'll see, has said to obey or submit to government, while here, in fact, he did not himself. It was about an absolute. We often, I'm using this term absolute. I know if you've been a part of the church family, we've, you've probably heard me talk frequently. We've used this in ministry leadership and grappling with thorny issues. That there are different kinds of issues that we face. Some are absolutes, some are convictions, and some are preferences. And we run into trouble when we don't understand biblically the differences between absolutes, convictions, and principles. Absolutes are timeless truths commands right and wrong things that the scripture tells us they'd be true in any time and really really every christian would agree about biblical absolutes because they are they are clear doctrinal or principles that we we see convictions are sometimes the personal applications we must make of biblical absolutes when you decide to watch a movie or not you're applying biblical principles, I trust, which are matters of conviction for you. When you decide whether you will drink alcohol or not, or so many different regular decisions, many of the things you guide your family with are about convictions. You, you see a biblical principle, but you know that Christians will disagree on how they apply that principle. Those are convictions. And, and then preferences are just, let's admit it, it's what we like. It's, what, it's our opinion of what we think is best. The absolute that Peter was facing was that Jesus told him he must preach the gospel. So you can do to me what you want to, but I've got to preach the gospel. And so that was the reason for his civil disobedience. If there's ever a time that uh, I am told I cannot preach about Christ, or you are told that you cannot tell people that Christ is the only way to heaven, that's a biblical absolute. If I'm told I cannot teach other principles of the Bible, if I cannot teach what the Bible says about biblical marriage, God's will for marriage is one man, one woman for life, if, if I can't teach that, then I have to suffer the consequence. That's an absolute. I've got to, I've got to say what the Bible says. Uh, otherwise, this principle applies. Submit to government because God determined who would govern us. This is very reassuring as we think about elections because I get it. I mean, since Tuesday, much of the nation's on kind of pins and needles wondering what the results are going to be. It is so reassuring as a believer in Christ to read this and realize we can embrace God's sovereignty or we can just fret about everything. When in fact, Scripture tells us to be anxious or worry about nothing. That's, that's an absolute. Stop worrying. So, a couple other things that I think apply towards elections. Election results do not mean that God determined who is the better person or who will be the better president. Election results mean that God determined what would be best for his purposes for the church? 
we need to apply Romans 8.28 to elections. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of who? Of those who love God and who have been called according to his purposes. That's us in this room. And so what God does in the world is always about the church first. What is best for the church? Winners of elections in America may or may not be good for America, but God's purposes in every election will be good for the church. So the real question we have to ask ourselves as those who love God is, what good thing is he doing in us the last eight months? And have we responded and experienced the good thing God wanted to do in us the last eight months? And we have to ask ourselves, what good thing does God want us to do in the coming, to, to want to accomplish in us in the coming years? Are we, are we sensitive to the good things that God wants to do because his purposes are always good for the church? Which means we have to admit that God's priority is not America's freedoms. God's priority is the church's purity. So is God being effective in accomplishing that for us? One of the ways God uses government for good, verses 3 through 5, is that he uses rulers to punish wrongdoers. Verse 3, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword, that's capital punishment, for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but because of conscience. We, we have a higher principle. Now, Nero was doubtless evil. In fact, in addition to putting Christians to death, Nero murdered his mother and various siblings and in-laws to accomplish his political power. Uh, Yet, throughout the Roman Empire, there were still many decent laws in place that throughout the entire empire were helping society and were accomplishing these good purposes. What about taxes? Hmm. This is why you pay taxes, verse 6. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. I'm quite sure that most of us disagree substantially, probably, with some of where our tax money goes. You could say amen. (laughs) Because... I mean, we, we, we feel like some things are good. Have you noticed the nice new road we have in front of the church? If you don't live in Ozaki County, you need to be thanking us <laughs> for that road. Some of it's going for good things, and, 
Other things we would even say that, uh, you know, as a Christian, I don't, think, I don't think we should be doing that. And yet, I'm quite convinced that probably all of us in this room are, are uh, paying all that the existing tax code requires. We don't get to pick which taxes we agree with and which ones we don't agree with. Because, you see, obeying government is a clear biblical absolute in, in principle. And we say, yeah, we, we can't pick. I chose to preach about this, like I said, a number of weeks ago, because of the elections. But there is an elephant in the room, as we think about this, masks. And it's something so obvious. Everything else that, so many other things that we decide, you know, no one knows but maybe our spouse. But so, let's let's talk about the elephant in the room. This biblical command is why uh, we as pastoral staff from the beginning have asked that the church would follow the state mandate. Uh, We see this as a principle, a biblical absolute principle that is not contradicted by some other biblical absolute principle. And I realize it's a hot topic and I realize there's disagreement. I'd have to be deaf or under a rock not to know what the issues are. And uh, I assure you, I love you all unconditionally, regardless of where you might be on this issue. But I just want to challenge us all about that absolute. But I also want to challenge you about this. It's also a biblical absolute to not judge, to not be angry, and to not argue. And so those are, those are, are principles dear to the heart of God as well. And so there we are. Any chance that God could be growing us spiritually through this time and thinking, wow, if his goal is the church's purity, what, what better opportunity? And so give generous grace, give benefit of the doubt to people for their reasons. Uh, grace is why we don't police this, not just because the state mandate says we don't do that. But a very basic reason, just wanted to address it, is that we as pastors... Uh, have said that we would follow the mandate unless you have an exception. That's very clear in the thing, too, and that's where we don't question one another's reasons. Okay, let the elephant out of the room. And turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. About seven years later, Peter was writing, if you want to know to who, it's listed in the very first verse of the book, It's an area about 600 to 1,000, 1,200 miles from Rome. So they're really quite a distance from Rome and, and Nero and all that. But nonetheless, there was persecution that these churches, and there's a big variety of churches, were undergoing. And to, inter- to introduce the transition that brought him to address this issue of submitting to authority is in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. That sounds clear. Why? Live such good lives among the pagans, unbelievers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 
The principle he's leading to then begins in verse 13, which is submit to human authorities, A, to honor God, and B, to be a good witness to the unbelievers around us. But he starts out in general and says, abstain from sinful desires, live such good lives that your neighbors next door say, I think an alien lives there. And the reason they would say that is that they are so good. They are so good that when I hear these accusations about Christians, I realize that doesn't add up because I know Joe. He's not like that. You've probably noticed that sometimes those of us who teach biblical morality about marriage and sexuality and so forth have been accused of hate speech. Okay? Just to be clear, I don't hate those who disagree with what the Bible says. I disagree with the, those who disagree with what the Bible says. And, and, and I, can, I, can, I can love them. You can love them. I think our church does a good job of loving those who disagree with us on those kinds of things. But nonetheless, the the idea, the accusation can be out there. How do you overcome that? By being so good, (laughs) so gracious, so having such an attitude about things that they say, whatever they are, I would like to be like that. And as a result, they would what? Glorify God on the day he visits. Some have said this visitation might be his visitation in future judgment, which it could be. I think it actually has more to do with what we've been studying in recent months about Christ's return. The idea is that we would live such good lives that those who are watching us live, who are not believers, would come to faith in Christ. So that if there is a, a group of unbelievers who know you, and your name comes up in a conversation, they couldn't gossip about us except in the good way, where they'd say, you know, I've heard that Christians are such, but actually the one I know, Joe, is, is not an angry person. He, he is not a hateful person. In fact, he has an incredibly good attitude about this whole election thing. And they would, God would use that, that they might actually come to faith in Christ. So with that context, verse 13 says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. That's, that's a, an application of the government principle to the principle of verse 12 about people seeing your good deeds and glorifying Christ coming to Christ. So when the lies are being told that that they don't stick with the distance that uh, Peter's audience or or, or recipients were from Rome, uh, scholars have, historians have said, you know, probably they were not undergoing the Nero stuff quite yet in terms of torture and death. 
But clearly, 1 Peter addresses persecution, so it's, but at least it was lies, uh, verbal abuse, false accusations. And so if you've ever experienced those things, you can, you can relate if, if, if because of what you believe as a, as, a, as a Christian. But do good to silence them. It brings up for me this, this issue of what issues as believers are worth fighting for legally. We vote. If God would appoint some to be in, 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 in human government as believers, and we'll, I'll give you some examples later, that is amazing and that's great. But what is worth fighting for in courts? Because sometimes I'm really thankful for Christian lawyers and Christian legal organizations who fight legal battles for religious freedom. I'm, very, I'm usually very thankful. Occasionally, I cringe. Because I wonder if sometimes we shoot our foot in terms of gospel opportunity because we've picked the wrong fights. And so that takes discernments and pray for those who are in this important role of, of, of Christian judicial things. I don't know what laws could emerge in coming years or decades, but we just need to be prepared to think biblically that we don't sacrifice opportunities for the main thing because we become so focused on uh, our rights. Think of a couple things of, that Jesus said in, in, in his life on earth. That time when he had the coin in his, someone handed him a coin and should we pay taxes to Caesar? And he, he had this incredible divine response while being fully aware of how things work. He said, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. That wasn't about separation of church and state. It could be applied that way. But it was saying that financial injustices, and the Jews hated paying that tax, Financial injustices are not a spiritual priority. Spiritual priorities are spiritual priorities. Or this time when Jesus was arrested in the garden, unjustly, if anyone ever did nothing wrong, it's him, tried at night, which was entirely illegal in the Roman system of government, Peter, who wrote this, was there. Remember what Peter did to respond to the injustice of them arresting Jesus at night? He pulled out the sword, and in defense of Jesus and what was right, he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. I assure you he was not aiming for the ear. He just missed in the dark. And Jesus, if you remember, picked up the ear and healed the guy. But what he said is the most helpful. What he said is, put your sword away. Don't you know I could have summoned 12 legions of angels? Legions are a loose number, but probably that's 50,000, 60,000 angels. <laughs> Using some hyperbole. No, he could have really done it. But it's more than you would need to handle the, the soldiers that showed up in the garden. Jesus said, I didn't do that. 
And I didn't do that because of a spiritual priority of going to the cross. So we were going we're to maybe sometime need the discernment to know whether suffering that we experience is God's will. If it's, if it's a health diagnosis, we grapple with that. If it's ever persecution, we still have to grapple with, is this suffering that's in God's will? Or do we go to every length to fight every, every legal battle? Discernment. Verse 16. Still in this context. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Now, the freedom that they would be acquainted with spiritually would be spiritual freedom from the Old Testament law, freedom from, from legalism, but yet it seems that he is applying it to this situation. Because we all know that, that sometimes in our, in our desire for freedom, we can abuse freedom. You give, give your teenager the keys to the car, they now have a freedom that you know, you're, the reason you're concerned until they pull back into the driveway is, did they use their freedom well? And another step of freedom, they, they go off to college, you now know nothing about bedtimes or people they're with or whatever, and, and, and we know that freedoms can be abused, and, and in this sense, it seems that Peter is warning the Christians to not misapply spiritual freedoms in a way that would shoot our testimony in the foot. That, that, that's the context. So how do you sort through the confusion and the chaos when it comes to legal things and Christian things and freedoms and American things? The last line of the verse says, live as servants of God. Just listen to God. Okay? How, what's God saying? Last, last weekend... Uh, we were in Arizona on Sunday, and so I was uh, listening to uh, Pastor Seth's sermon. Well, some of it. What's neat about online, and I, I, I realize you can walk out of the room, you can turn it off, you can do anything you want. <laughs> Sorry, Seth. But I was listening, and he put up this great chart about how we make choices. We make choices either from our sinful flesh influenced by the world, or we as Christians make choices from directed by the Spirit of God. That is the constant issue we have to grapple with. Where is our, where, where is our decision, where is our attitude coming from? Because, in fact, you can be right about something and sin at the same time. It happens all the time in, in marriages, right? Because I can be right about the issue, and I usually am, just kidding. <laughs> I can be right about the issue and wound my wife. And so I'm right and sinning at the same time. And I think we need to realize that sometimes as we relate to government, we can be right and sinfully selfish at the same time. Are we sensitive to the Spirit of God? Is that, is that our influence? So live as servants of God. Is the Holy Spirit guiding your words, your attitudes, your actions? Especially if you don't like the results of an election or a law or a tax. 
in this context. And just so we know that he's still on the same subject and didn't move away from it, verse 17, show proper res- four commands, for- show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Wow. Show proper respect to everyone. Is that what you've seen on social media the last while? Proper respect to everyone. We have to take a deep breath and ask if our words and tone shows proper respect to everyone. People with yard signs for the other guy. Because there's a lot of anger and very little respectful conversation these days. I just have to, I can't help but wonder in this context, probably Peter was writing stuff that not every Christian agreed with. And that's the second narrowing of the second command, where Peter goes from everyone to believers, love the brotherhood. My translation says of, of believers. It's not actually in the literal Greek text, but it's, that's the same idea. Love the brotherhood, meaning fellow believers. If you have found yourself more angry at fellow believers lately, you now realize that you are in a spiritual battle. Um, Because if we find that we disrespect, even despise one another, we now are not living by the Spirit, but by the flesh. Respect everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. That is the foundation. Asking ourselves, my thoughts, words, actions, are they under God's ultimate authority? And then, he says, honor the king. In other words, unless you have this concept of, biblically, of of respecting everyone, loving a believer, and fearing God, you probably won't honor the king either. But if if you line up in those first three categories... Now you can figure out how to honor the king and, and what that might look, for, look like for you. So Peter wrote about seven years after Paul wrote Romans, and then let's go to 1 Timothy. Even though it's back in, in your uh, scripture, it's actually two, about two years later. So he said, to, in, so, so the scripture is telling us in Romans 13, submit to government because that's how we embrace the sovereignty of God. And then Peter says, submit to government because that's how we honor God and have a witness to fellow believer, to, to unbelievers, rather. So submit, submit, and now what Paul says about this is pray. Pray for your governing authorities so that we can effectively proclaim the gospel. Verse 1, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, specifically for kings and all in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. (laughs) Paul has already spent two years in, a, in Roman incarceration, end of the book of Acts, when he writes this to Timothy. Uh, he says an angel had told him he would appear before Caesar, but in that first imprisonment, he never did appear before Caesar, it seems. He was released and had further ministry, we know from 
of 1 Timothy and Titus. But several years later, when Paul would write 2 Timothy, he was again incarcerated, and that's the one where it seems that indeed Nero had him put to death. Doesn't, we don't have that historical statement, but that's what is, is, is clear. Like uh, 2 Timothy 4.6 says, he knows he's being poured out. He knows he's about to die. So between these two imprisonments is when he says this, pray and thank God for your kings. Hmm. Is this pertinent? Let's, let's pray for our mayors. Let's pray for our law enforcement. Let's pray for our governor and let's pray for our president. Why? Two things, two requests. One is that we might live peaceful, godly, and holy lives. The second is that God wants all people to be saved. So, Let's think through those. I can imagine Paul praying, Lord, you know that Nero doesn't love you, doesn't know you. He hates us as Christians. He persecutes. He kills us. But, oh God, would you work in Nero's heart that he would be saved and work in our government so that we could live peaceful, godly lives. Amen. That's, that's a prayer I can imagine in praying. The second part is about what we see in verse uh, 3, 4. God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Whenever somebody has come, comes to faith in Christ, it is a supernatural work of God, right? So whether it's a 7-year-old in your home, a 15-year-old in our youth group, or an adult that watches our services or comes to our services or your neighbor... It's a miracle, the work of God. Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in miracles? <laughs> then let's pray for our governing authorities that people would come to Christ. Chuck Colson was a, uh, was a special counsel to President Nixon, those of you who remember President Nixon, um, for two years, 1969 and 70. He was one of Nixon's hatchet men, he was called, when the Watergate scandal broke and Nixon needed to resign in uh, disgrace. Chuck Colson, for his part, in criminal activities, was, had to serve seven months in federal prison, but that, and that would take place in 1974. But the year before, the year in between, Chuck Colson came to know the gospel and put his faith in Jesus Christ. And he wrote a book that is still influencing our world today, describing his experience. What's the name of the book, somebody? Born Again. Because he was born again. In fact, the reason why people, even today in, in American culture, are familiar with the phrase born again is not because they're reading John 3 very much, where the phrase occurs biblically, but because of the impact of Chuck Colson and that book of his salvation. This week, Friday, I got a call from uh, Larry Moyer, the evangelist who's been with us, and he's calling me to talk about some opportunities and technologies that could, could benefit pastors during this season. In the conversation, he told me about years ago meeting Dick Army, who some of you may recall that name in political circles. He was the House Majority Leader from 95 to 2003. Dick came to faith in Christ in one of Larry Moyer's meetings. Are we praying for those? in authority? Do we realize the impact of that? Because what, what Paul is saying is we need to make Christ's priority of the cross and the gospel 
our priority. And then suddenly, a lot of this government issue is clearly subjected to the priority of what we are called to do and be as a church. Studies show that people are often most interested in spiritual things when they are fearful and worried. Ah, meet anybody like that lately. In our fear and our worry, we need something stable. What an opportunity we have. And so what he says, it's like Paul is almost like he is forced by the Spirit to go into the tangent of the gospel, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. And a teacher of the true faith of the Gentiles. So it's like Paul goes, and pray for kings. We want to live a peaceful life. But guys, don't forget that God's call on my life and God's call on our life is to, first of all, proclaim the gospel. There's one way to be saved, and that way is Jesus Christ. He's the one who died for our sins. He's the only mediator between God and man. And COVID will pass, and presidents will pass, but people will live forever in heaven or hell. And will that be our priority? So as you pray for kings, for those in authority, pray biblical prayers. We live peaceful, godly lives that we can live holy. And that more and more and more people would be saved and brought into this eternal kingdom so that we will be forever together in the heaven we've been studying about recently. And, 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 and everything is subjected to a greater cause. In case we wondered if he's completely wandered off the subject of uh, praying for those in authority, as he transitions in verses 9 and 10 to addressing men and women about different things, here's what he says to men. Speaking of prayer, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. So, if you're going to pray biblical prayers, and these things really matter to you, praying biblical prayers about government then, and, 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 and the gospel, then he says, make sure that you're lifting holy hands as you pray. Not that you have to lift your hands to pray, but make sure that your heart is right. Interestingly, the point he brings out that might be an unholy hand would be anger and disputing. So make sure as you pray biblical prayers that anger and disputing does not distract or disrupt your prayer life. I'm grateful for America. I'm grateful that America is different politically than the Roman Empire. I'm grateful we could go to vote. And I'll keep voting. But when the votes are counted, we then, what? Simply embrace all the results as God's sovereignty. And do what? Submit to government wherever it doesn't uh, contradict some absolute uh, principle or command of Scripture. And then we pray biblical prayers. We pray, if we're disappointed in the election results, then we, we pray biblical prayers. If you, if you like something about the elections, you pray biblical prayers. Struggling with an attitude, pray biblical prayers. We live peaceful, godly lives. And that God would work to bring more and more people to salvation because there's one mediator between God and man. 
And that's Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are, uh, we've all come through a difficult time in terms of the health issues around the globe, in terms of election issues in America. And uh, you know our hearts have often been distressed. And you call us to your word always for peace, assurance, direction, guidance, exhortation, confidence. And so we just, as your people here in this area, we submit ourselves to your word and we ask your spirit to work in us and may we uh, draw together around those most important things as we proclaim the gospel, the only hope of this world. In Jesus' name, amen.